Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. everybody to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCarthy. I'd like to extend a very special welcome to my new listeners who've been trapped in my net, my pod net, following my interview with Scott Hambrick. It was really a great pleasure to interview Scott, and so I'm glad to see that I've got some new listeners out of it who, I guess, enjoyed the interview as well. At least that's what the download numbers indicate. So, because we've got all these new listeners coming in, and because, in case you didn't notice, we are but one episode away from episode 20, which I consider to be quite a milestone, I want this to be a sort of casual, back-to-basics episode. I say casual because, of course, really all the introductory material to this project is already out there. I've already recorded it and done it, so I'm not going to get back into all that here today. But rather, I'm going to point back and give a sort of overview of what the podcast has been up to this point. Because so far, I've arranged the podcast as if it were a sort of curriculum, with certain subjects being studied in a somewhat orderly fashion. So here we'll zoom out and I'll give you the big picture of what that has been up to this point. Perhaps a pattern will emerge, and then again, perhaps not. Let's find out. This project of mine, of course, begins first off with the book, The Story of Nowhere, which, as you should all know by now, but then again, maybe you don't because you're new, is available in multiple formats at storyofnowhere.com slash book. The ebook and the audiobook are totally free to you, and then there is a paperback option if you're interested in financially supporting this project. And by the way, the audiobook is actually in this podcast feed. It's the very first thing if you scroll all the way down to the bottom. So I've made it very easy for you to consume, and I hope that you do consume it, because the book really is the true and proper beginning of the Story of Nowhere project and podcast. After the book came episode zero, which is a proper introduction to the podcast itself, as well as an introduction for me as your host. But the most important thing that I want to reiterate here today about Episode Zero and the book is the actual definition, my personal working definition of utopia and utopianism as provided in those two materials. Given that this show is all about utopianism, I figure as we welcome new listeners and stare down the barrel of a 20th episode, I figure it wouldn't hurt to have a very, very brief refresher on what it is we're actually talking about. So, as I put it in both the book and in episode zero, my working definition of utopia is the inherently and internally contradictory belief that a theoretical vision of an ideal society based on ideological assumptions about human nature, can justifiably be implemented by way of deception and or violence. Now, believe me, I know that that is an earful of a definition. But you know what? 
like Aristotle said, the more specific your definition is, the better. And both in the book and in episode zero, I spend a fair amount of time breaking down that definition for you point by point. And I do it in two different ways. In the book, I do it one way, and in the podcast, I do it another way. So I've tried to make it as clear as possible. So please go back and either read the book or listen to the book and listen to episode zero for sure. After the book and after episode zero came a five-part series called A Brief History of Critical Thinking. It's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. I wanted to kick the show off by talking about critical thinking because it's something that I think is really important, especially considering the nature of the material I plan to cover going forward. However, there's already an abundance of material available, be it in podcast form, article form, and book form, concerning the process of how to do critical thinking. So I didn't want to just be redundant and repeat all of that stuff, because you can find it already on your own. I wanted to offer something new and unique. So what I found was that, despite all the materials concerning how to critical think, no one had really done anything on the history of critical thinking. I was curious to see how, through the centuries and through the millennia, people described humankind's rational capacity. How did these descriptions change? How did they stay the same? And by analyzing these descriptions, could we extract a sort of universal form of critical thinking? So that's what my brief history of critical thinking series is fundamentally all about. Episodes 1 through 4 cover the history of rational thought from prehistory up until the Age of Enlightenment, the so-called Age of Reason, and the rise of science as we now understand it. In Episode 5, the concluding part of the series, I'm joined by historical researcher Kevin Cole. We discuss the sort of other side of the coin, how critical thinking frameworks, when institutionalized, can actually, potentially be used as mechanisms of social control. And as an example of this, we look at the British Empire's use of the historical trivium in order to manufacture a top-down artificial imperial culture. Up next, of course, was episode 6, A Critical Look at Thinking, which I guess is kind of like an unofficial part of the Brief History of Critical Thinking series. It's really a sort of epilogue. In that episode, I reflect on the lessons that I learned from looking at the history of critical thinking, and I briefly touch on the importance of language in relation to the concepts it's designed to represent. Having at that point spent well over five podcasting hours on the subject of critical thinking, in episode seven, I turn my attention to the opposite of critical thinking, and in doing so, exemplify the utility of critical thinking. Episode 7 is all about propaganda. I discuss the basic methods of manipulation as outlined in Edward Bernays' appropriately titled 1928 manual, Propaganda. I know that I'm by no means the first person in the alternative media world to discuss this book, but I'm confident that you'll find my particular analysis of this book fairly unique and I even employ some of the critical thinking methods and lessons we learned in the previous series in my analysis. So I highly recommend that you check out Episode 7, tantalizingly titled, The Constitution of the Invisible Government. Episode 8 features survivalist Stefan Verstappen, and in that episode we leave the realm of the abstract 
and talk more specifically about practical actions that can be taken when catastrophes occur. The name of that episode is Navigating Dystopia, and that's exactly what we talk about. Episodes 9 and 12 were originally recorded for Kevin Cole's podcast, The Ominous Continuity Podcast. In this pair of shows, Kevin and I focus on the history of the rhetoric of political unity, tracing it at least as far back as the ancient Greek thinker Isocrates. This two-part conversation focuses on the importance of language in fabricating political unity and also touches on media theorist Marshall McLuhan's famous dictum that the medium is the message. In episode 10, I correct the record a little bit concerning one of my all-time favorite books, Plato's Republic. Most people are under the impression, I think, that in that book, Plato is advocating for some totalitarian or at least authoritarian state. In this book, he does, in fact, describe an authoritarian state, which is replete with propaganda, eugenics, censorship, all sorts of things like that. However, before he describes this all-powerful state, he describes a far more primitive ideal, which lacks all of these authoritarian interventions, which his book is now famous for. Basically, he describes an agorist's paradise, and it's only when his friends say, hey, but we want, like, imported luxuries and stuff, that he says... All right, but if you get that stuff, then you're also going to get these authoritarian things with your consumerism. So really, you can read the Republic as a kind of criticism or critique of mass consumerist society. At least, that's one way of reading it. So in episode 10, I discuss that possibility while also providing my own commentary on this concept of mass society versus a more localized society, which is originally described as the ideal society in the Republic. In episode 11, I give a very, very, very brief introduction to the study of historiography, which is the study of the study of history. I discuss some of the common lenses through which people interpret history, but mostly I focus on that lens which is typically, and I believe unduly and irresponsibly, ignored and disparaged, and that is, of course, the conspiratorial lens. Episode 13 is another correcting of the record episode, sort of. In it, I discuss Agrarian Justice, a short tract written by the founding father Thomas Paine, which is, unfortunately, very often overlooked or forgotten about entirely. In it, Paine outlines a plan for a redistribution of wealth system, which is really interesting because this challenges the sort of typical red-blooded conservative Americans' cartoonish view of who the Founding Fathers were and what they actually believed. But it also raises some really interesting questions into the nature of Enlightenment politics, liberalism, and eventually socialism. So one of these big questions, in fact, really the key question of this episode, is was Thomas Paine actually a kind of proto-socialist? It's a really interesting question, and I think it's a really interesting episode, so please be sure to check that one out if you're interested in political theory as it developed during the Age of Enlightenment and beyond. Episode 14 is an exceptionally fun one. It's all about movies. It's a movie review show in preparation for my then-upcoming series on the history of the British Empire. So in this episode, I use movies to give you a rundown of basic British history from approximately 1170 A.D. to 1535 A.D. 
So check it out. Lots of fun and a lot of really good movie recommendations in that one. Episodes 15, 16, and 17 constitute my big series, Myth, Empire, and Utopia, The Rise and Rule of Britannia, which is all about the origins and eventual implications of British imperialism. This series highlights the key role that cultural mythology, coupled with an evolving, progressive, utopian conception of the future, play in modern statecraft. So that's a big honking thing that I worked on for uh, over half of last year. So dig it. Finally, episode 18 was my conversation with Scott Hambrick, in which we discussed some of the philosophical shortcomings of the modern world and critiqued the Age of Enlightenment and the ethos of scientism and progress that it fostered. There's this inclination to take for granted that the Enlightenment and modernity itself are these just purely positive forces. And in this episode, we push back on that preconception. So check it out if you're not afraid of being triggered. And there you have it. There are all of the main episodes of the Story of Nowhere podcast. I do hope that upon hearing them all laid out like that, you'll go back and re-listen to some of them, or maybe you'll listen to some of them for the first time that you missed. Now, aside from that main catalog, there are also a number of bonus shows that I've done, all of which are available at storyofnowhere.com, just like the regular podcast is. The first bonus show is called In Pursuit of Utopia, and it actually predates this very podcast. I started this one back in 2019 with Brett Vanat, formerly of The School Sucks Project, and we discussed historical utopias in a conversational sort of style. In the seventh episode, we brought in Kevin Cole and turned our dialogue into a trialogue. We did four more with Kevin, making a total of 11 episodes of In Pursuit of Utopia, the first five of which are currently available at storyofnowhere.com. I am planning on re-releasing the remaining episodes of In Pursuit of Utopia, so be sure to pay attention to storyofnowhere.com and, of course, keep listening to this podcast for updates on that front. But as it stands now, episodes 1 through 5 are freely available at storyofnowhere.com and in this podcast feed... The sixth episode of In Pursuit of Utopia was actually released as a regular episode of the School Sucks podcast, and it is number 634 from December the 31st, New Year's Eve, 2019. So you can check that one out there, and then episodes 7 through 11 are currently, for the time being, only available to subscribing members of Brett's School Sucks project. But like I said, I'll be doing something with those episodes here as well. Another bonus show you'll find available at storyofnowhere.com is They Say, which I conducted with my wife over the past year. Our original plan was to make this a monthly show, but then we bought a house. So, you know how that goes. Hopefully, we'll be able to pick it up again sometime in the future. But anyway, there are five episodes of that video show available at storyofnowhere.com. In They Say... We look at the Council on Foreign Relations' official bi-monthly journal, Foreign Affairs, and analyze selected articles from it. In those five episodes, we look not only at issues of the journal from the modern day, but also issues from the past, and thus provide data and commentary on a hundred years of American foreign policy. I think it'd be worth checking out. Find every episode at storyofnowhere.com slash they say. 
Last but not least, there are just some standard bonus episodes of the podcast, which you can find in the main podcast feed. These are marked very obviously by big letters saying BONUS before the show's title. I've only done two of these up to this point. The first one is a recording of one of my great books club meetings, in which we discuss the ideal state as formulated in Plato's Republic, so this bonus show serves as a sort of supplement to episode 10. The second bonus show I did was my very positive review of the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. Ah, and I know I said last but not least, but there is one more thing to mention on the bonus show front. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast feed, because in the next couple of days, you're going to get some news about a brand new entertainment-y style bonus show that's coming, and I'll say no more about that until the time is right. But stay tuned, you're going to like it. So there it is, all of my stuff, described in just over 15 minutes. But because I want this episode to be a little bit longer than 15 minutes, and because I want it to be a back-to-basics episode, I'm going to leave you with an interview in which I discuss the basics of the Story of Nowhere project. So I'm not doing the interviewing here, rather I'm being interviewed in what you're about to hear. And this interview was conducted probably on August 13th of 2021 at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest by a gentleman by the name of Owen, whose own podcast is called Bootsy Greencast. That's Bootsy Greencast. How's that for a name? This interview was originally featured on that podcast, but now I am rebroadcasting it here today for you. As I say, we touch on all the basics in this interview. I give an overview of the Story of Nowhere project. We talk about utopianism in general, uh, methodologies for doing historical research. Then we get into technocracy and the collapse of civilization. And we manage to squeak in some solutions talk at the end. It's a very holistic presentation. So we're going to get right into that. Thank you again for tuning in. As always, this is the Story of Nowhere podcast, and I am pleased and honored to have you here as we approach the 20th episode. Please consider purchasing a copy of the paperback version of the Story of Nowhere book at storyofnowhere.com book if you're interested in supporting this project. Be sure to share this podcast and the book with anyone you know who may be interested. And, once again, make sure that you're subscribed to the Story of Nowhere podcast feed and or are checking up on the Story of Nowhere website so you don't miss news of the brand new project coming soon to a theater near you. Here is my interview with Owen of Bootsy Greencast, coming at you from the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest 2021. Take care. <laughs> okay. So you really want to know, huh? Fine. I'm going to start by telling you this. And this is important, so listen up. Your entire life, this one and many others, you've been a god who uses its absolute power to make yourself powerless. Entire cultures, especially this one, have all been afraid of their weaknesses, supposedly. When in reality, they've all been afraid of their power. This goes beyond the matrix of reality. This is something much deeper than that. This is eternal. This is fully realizing your consciousness. This is infinite. This is evolution. 
This is our divine right. Okay, I am with Daniel McCarthy, and we are in a tent, and when we walk out of here, we're probably going to look like we were doing mad, passionate things to one another in in this thing, because it's a little bit warm, but we're at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Festival, and I'm really excited uh, to be able to talk with you. you got a book called The Story of Nowhere and a podcast by the same name, and I love what you're exploring, and I'm excited to to talk about it. a little bit with you and how it applies to us, you know, on a day-to-day life and our motivation. So welcome, dude. Thank you so much for being a part of this, this impromptu podcast in the middle of a uh, peace festival. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. yeah, dude. Absolutely. That's so cool. This is why I came here. I came here to connect with people and talk to people and and uh, and really learn. All that said, I think it's really an interesting concept. So if you don't mind, you know, tell people about your book and, and why you started writing it uh, and what it's about. Sure. So again, like you said, the title is The Story of Nowhere. And the explanation behind that title is that the word utopia is actually Greek for nowhere or no place more specifically. So that's the explanation behind that. And I think there's something really meaningful just in that etymology of the word utopia, that it actually means nowhere, as in a place that does not exist anywhere on the terrestrial realm, and it will not exist, ostensibly. So there is no utopia, there never has been, and there never will be. And yet, utopianism, as I've understood it and continue to study it, is this unceasing belief that people can be perfected. You know, to I could put it in a nutshell simply by saying that it is the belief that people can be perfected. And what that means isn't just that, you know, we're all nice to each other. It means that our institutions, those things which preserve our ability to interact with each other and improve our abilities to interact with each other, that those can reach some ultimate pinnacle of realization. I, I simply don't believe that to be true. And unfortunately, it seems that throughout history, so many people have believed it to be true, uh, such that they were willing to commit massive amounts of just murder and theft uh, and a number of other things. I mean, war, I think, war has pragmatic origins, but it also has these idealistic origins. And often I think those are, are linked to utopianism. So in the book, I, I really try to keep it general. I have a whole section defining what exactly I mean by utopianism. I know I'm being a little vague right now in general for the sake of conversation, but in the book I really try to nail it down because it's such an abstract word, and I've, I've heard a lot of different people refer to utopia and utopianism but never give a real definition. So I spend a good amount of time doing that, but then the rest of the book is a very general sprint through history here's a utopia here's a utopia here's a utopia and here's how they all came crashing down and actually destroying the lives they purported to to be about saving cool well that's awesome man i, I think the book is a really good size it seems really digestible and and boiled down really simply which is really cool what are some of those civilizations that you uh, point to in the book sure so uh let's see the first th- first two chapters actually discuss more about myths and I guess you could say the psychological phenomenon of utopia as it began in the ancient world. So after that, I cover the Middle Ages. And I think that 
the Middle Ages get a bad rap in a lot of ways. I won't get into that right now. But there was a sort of overarching ideology in Western Europe from the period of approximately 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. that the Roman Catholic Church in particular was was given the divine order to save the planet Earth and, in effect, re-realize the Garden of Eden, the conditions of paradise. So... In this third chapter, I talk about how there's this pattern of utopians often to point to a prior golden age. Because if, if I were just to walk up to you on the street and say, hey man, you know, one day everything's going to be great. You know, you're not going to be hungry. The lambs will lie down with the lions and all of that stuff. You're going to be rather incredulous. You're going to say, I don't really, I don't think so. Right. But if I can point and say, well, look, it was like that before. There was this place called Garden of Eden. That's where we all come from, blah, blah, blah. Then in the minds of the individuals hearing these stories over and over again, it makes it more plausible. And so I think that in the Middle Ages, the Christian mission was to essentially return to the conditions of prehistoric utopia in a post-historic world by history actually coming to an end in the book of Revelation. So I talk about that. Um, I talk about... Uh, skipping ahead a few chapters into the more modern era, I talk about the secular scientific utopianism of the French and American revolutionaries and their desire to transcend that sort of Judeo-Christian model, but they still believed in a coming post-historical era. They still believed that there would come a point where human beings would transcend their flaws and they also, a lot of them anyway, believed that before civilization, there was, in fact, a golden age, Eden-esque utopia. It, it just wasn't Adam and Eve. It was like Indians, you know, living off the land okay. and living in, in harmony with each sure. other. So those are just a couple. Um, and the, the last one I talk about is the modern era, and I get into a lot of uh, technocratic stuff. Te transhumanism. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense. That seems like the new thing where it's like, oh, we'll be able to hook into the internet and everything will be great then because we'll be hooked to the internet and we can just access stuff or have this experience and dial it up or whatever, um, which it sounds creepy to me, you know, frankly. But um, <laughs> And I guess I don't want to really necessarily go too much into that. I really want to kind of stay on topic of, you know, the idea of utopia, kind of holding this carrot out the ends justifying the means, which is like, cool, if we can get to utopia via the path of utopia, let's fucking do it. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, if we can implement the principles that are supposedly going to be embraced once we get to utopia right now, shouldn't reality just shift into utopia as opposed to like this, you know, hey, we'll get there soon, but we got to kill a bunch of people first, right? right. <laughs> yes, it always seems to work that That's way. It's funny how that happens. But <laughs> let, let me ask you this. What got you into this particular uh, study? Well, geez, for for years. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're... Hey. <laughs> Come on, man. Four-wheeler rides. Come on, bro. <laughs> Take it easy. Uh, for years, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in history and philosophy and all sorts of adjacent studies. Uh, anthropology. And so as I got older, it became more apparent to me that there was, there must be something linking all of my interests together and all these things that no one else seems to care about. But I could never figure out what it was. And for a while, I got really interested in the study of propaganda. And I was actually 
a decent way through writing a book about specifically propaganda through history. And um, I sort of hit a wall and became very dejected and then put that project aside and said, you know, look, I, I just need to figure out what's connecting all of my interests because I can't pick one thing. Because if I pick, if I choose propaganda to be the thing I spend two years on, well, then what about cybernetics? What about ancient history? What right. about mythology? Right. Well, duh. you know, I, I need to get all of these things. What connects them? And so finally, uh, what happened was I was actually rereading the draft of that book, the propaganda book. And in the very beginning, I talked about Plato's Republic, in which he outlines a sort of utopian state. And in that book, I was thinking of the utopianism of the Republic as a kind of form of propaganda. But for whatever reason, when I reread it, I realized I had it backwards, that it, propaganda was a function of his utopianism, that the propaganda is merely a means to the end of utopia. Right. And I mean, honestly, it was like overnight. It, once I had that, I was like, all right, I'm buying a domain. Like, this is what I'm doing. And ever since then... <laughs> clearly not a utopia here. Right. <laughs> There will be engines forever. There's no getting away from that, not even in Eden. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, ever since then, I, I have been able to focus on the larger project of utopianism, recognizing that that's going to require some tangential sojourns into other subjects, such as propaganda and cybernetics, mythology, etc. Uh -huh. So really, the best thing about this thing that I figured out is what I want to study is that it satisfies all of my intellectual desires. And I think that's probably a pretty good sign that you're on the right track. Absolutely. So that's really, it's sort of, I guess, selfish reasons that got me to the study. And then after that, once I really started looking at these historical utopias, I was like, oh, this is actually real. Like, this, I actually might be onto something here. That's so cool, man. Yeah. So to me, that's just a sign that you're on your purpose, you know, and which mm -hmm. I think is awesome. I, I'm a big advocate of that. But I want to talk about a little bit what you said, you know, when you're going through all these methods of studying these ideas and how there's a limited time. That's a real problem. You know, you can't research everything. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. And wondering if, too, that might be part of the reality that we find ourselves in. You know, there's the flood of information with everything that just, you know, happened over the, the, the past couple of years that's intentional and there's different information and disinformation and yada, yada, yada. So in studying history, does it kind of seem like, uh, wake it up from being like a, having a brownout, you know, and being like, all right, let's <laughs> kind of put our uh, pieces together. What do we have here? What's, what, what's connected? Uh, like, as far as what do you really draw from when you're trying to put these pieces together as you just go wherever it leads. Um, do you have a methodology? I know it all un is under the umbrella mm -hmm. of, uh, finding, you know, utopian means toward basically control, I guess, and, uh, influencing human thought, behavior, etc. Uh, but what, what do you, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here other than, how do you know the information that you're getting, I guess, from history is, uh, is going to be accurate, is going to be worth using or drawing from? Sure. Well, I would say as a rule of thumb for anyone who's interested in history, particularly given the age that we live in with the Internet for however long we actually have access to it, the 
number one thing you got to do is get primary sources. So, for instance, right now I'm working on a podcast episode about the origins of the British Empire, which no one really seems to know much about. Uh, so, and I, it's a very interesting story. And what what's very nice about the present era is that I can go on archive.org and uh, find a book, an old book, maybe written in the 1900s, 1800s, uh, having to do with the British Empire. And rather than basing my entire project on one of these books, I can flip back into the, the bibliography of it, check some citations, and invariably, these people will cite a primary document that was actually written back in, let's say, 1576 or something. Okay. So all I got to do is write that title down and then punch it into archive.org. I'll, I'll say seven or eight out of ten of the times I'll find it there that's cool uh, with with older texts I know if you're interested in studying more modern history which I also am you're more likely to find what you're looking for but even stuff from like the 1500s you're more likely than not to find somebody huh. has scanned it some lunatic in some wow. university of india library almost uh, as an aside almost every <laughs> uh, almost every primary source i'm using for this current show was uploaded by some U indian university huh. like they've got all this imperial stuff in their universities and someone's just scanning that it's it's amazing so um we have the wonderful tool of being able to find primary documents for free if you have an internet connection. And so the, that would be my primary answer is primary sources. If you can get your hands on or your eyeballs on something that was actually published by the people you're talking about in the time period you're concerned with, you're not going to get much better than that. I mean, unless you were talking about footage of something happening. Primary sources are the way to go. And what I would recommend everyone do if you are pulling from archive.org or something, download the PDF, save it, because it might not be there forever. Make your own backups. And what's nice about doing that is you'll find things that have been removed, you still have access to. And there's a key in there. When you save something that might be deleted, you're also saving the whole bibliography. So there might be a citation in there that you really need. Wow. And if that hasn't been deleted that yet, then you can also find it. So it's, it's really important. And the, the, the justification behind being more concerned with primary documents is, I think, fairly obvious. Uh, the closer you can get to a historical event, the more likely you are to get not the actual facts, but the feelings and in-the-moment thoughts of the people who were present at the time. I don't necessarily think that it's more true but you're going to get a better feel for what people at the time on the ground were actually thinking and that's invaluable and you'll also learn about different relationships people have another great trick that you can use as, as someone who's interested in history forget all these government proclamations and stuff that you know if you went to public school or something you might assume that that's where history lies you know in the declaration of 19 whatever that's where you're going to find the true history but the case is actually you're really going to find the most historically enlightening information in personal correspondence if you can find a letter between thomas jefferson and james madison that's going to be of far more value than reading the declaration of independence if you actually want to understand the motivations behind a historical event cool. and that's another thing. Archive.org, man. I'll shill for them all day. Nice. You know, you, <laughs> that's where you got to go. 
That's cool. I love that. That's so cool. I love that. That's uh, really a great tip and uh, and a way to really cross-check everything and, you know, a smart way to kind of go through the book. So as far as the utopia thing in modern uh, day uh, parlances, what about, you know, people who are going to say, well, we can, well, we can have a utopia. We just did it wrong. Or... Um, or, or have an idea, you know, or trying their best and want to see the best. I'm an idealist. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I want to see the best in people. I want, you know, hippies to run around and, uh, naked or whatever they want to do. You know, I don't care. Right. Um, so, you know, what about that? How can we, um, how can we kind of just be on our guard and, you know, to talk to someone who's maybe a little bit resistant to the idea that there's no such thing as, as a utopia? Well, the number one thing is, being independent when it comes to the most important resources in your life or as independent as possible. So I'm, I'm with you, man. I mean, I'd love for people just to be left alone and to kind of let the chips fall where they may. And I imagine that it'll actually turn out pretty fine. And it was something that people often forget, at least when we're talking about like, I remember in school, you know, the history class, even the ancient history class would always start around 6,000 BC in Sumer. It's like, well, 99% of human history stretches far before that. You know, we've only been doing this civilization thing for a little bit. Right. Most of human history was spent organizing into small groups of tribes. And I'm not going to pretend that was perfect. There is this sort of noble savage myth that came up in the Enlightenment. I don't think that's right. I'm sure there were problems. I'm sure there was disease and sickness and war and whatever. But... We need to acknowledge that there are other ways of doing things that do not rely on central institutions. Mm-hmm. That's the ticket. Mm-hmm. So I th- I'm sympathetic with what you're saying. I also want to see the hippies running around. And if I don't want to hang out with the hippies, I want to be able to leave. Yeah. I don't, I'm not in favor right. of any sort of one, um, one-size-fits-all system that's going to supposedly ameliorate all of these things, all of these issues that nature has imposed on us. I don't think that it's reasonable to assume that it's, for some reason, the universe owes you an institution that could ensure that no child ever goes hungry. Right. Now, as much as I would like for no child to go hungry, the way to do that isn't to set up some gigantic house of cards. Mm -hmm. The way to do that is to secure local systems of food independence. That way, if this town goes hungry, but this other town nearby has a surplus, they're able to work something out. Whereas, as we witnessed in the last year with COVID, and it was somewhat of a pleasure to watch it happen, um, we, we realized and got to witness firsthand the failures of globalism when, you know, you shut down part of the economy and then other parts of it that you would never assume to be connected. Well, they also suffer because mm-hmm. it's a big web and it's mm-hmm. all interconnected. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a problem if people rely on all these different things. And so the best, the way towards, I don't want to say utopia, the way toward a responsible society is actually being as independent as possible. And the thing about most utopian systems that I've looked at, and indeed, I really think most utopian systems that have ever been attempted, have all been focused on a sort of centralization. At some point or another, the, the problem of centralization and distribution of resources enters into the picture, and it's always invariably done under the guise of benevolence. And almost a sort of salvationist rhetoric that says, look, this is how we're going to do it. We'll take all the food, we'll hold on to it, and then we'll make sure everyone gets their fair share. 
So that's what I resist. I resist the dependence. And, you know, even the idea of utopianism itself would be rendered harmless if people were independent. If you and I sat here and came up with a utopian idea for a society, if the vast majority of human beings were independent, then what's to stop us from trying our utopia? We're not going to hurt anyone else. Absolutely not. You know, it's only when these systems, in order to incentivize the layman and the average working person to get involved with the utopia, is by first making sure that you're dependent on institutions for information, for resources, for the education of your children, and for wealth. Those are the four things, I think. Well, I guess the hidden fifth one would be personal security. If If a society can make you dependent on its central institutions for those five things, then... Well, get ready for some utopian rhetoric soon, because they're going to have to justify that. But in the end, it just amounts to dependence, which is a fancy word for slavery, right. I believe. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, no, I, I track with you 100%. It's like making your own decision versus someone deciding for you. There's a huge difference there. I don't give a shit if you want to go live out in the woods in a loincloth or you know, decide that you want to live X, Y. I think there's a lot of different ways to live. I'll just say it that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. That uh, that could be fine for a lot of different people. There's not one right way to do anything. I don't believe. I just think that's s- silly. You know. Yeah. There are better and worse ways to do certain things, but at the same time, like it's really about it's and it's, it should be really I think easy to sniff out when it when it becomes that you don't have a choice anymore in this in this matter. You know, it's like that's not good. But back to the centralization thing. You know, if everything's going to get centralized and it's in the core common interest of everyone who's in the group and there's always that justification and it's always a sliding scale there's never any static uh i guess moral code that governs society at that point exactly well and if we accept the premise that the utopia actually has the general good of the general public in mind then if you and i resist it not we're not just dissenters we're not just people who want to do something else we are bad because we're direct, we're almost committing violence mm-hmm. against the average person who's getting swept along with the utopian current. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. You can't disagree. Because it's and to, you know, I know you you might have another question. I'll just say briefly that the the modern technological utopianism that I detail in my book to to an extent I think for the first time we have the actual potential of realizing what is genuine totalitarianism. Hitler's tried, Stalin tried, Mao tried, and historians have called what they did totalitarianism, and I think they have done so rather sloppily, because it wasn't total. There were gaps, there were little air bubbles in the system where people were able to dissent, and not just dissent in theory, but actually do so effectively. I mean, people were able to get out of the Soviet Union. There were groups of teenage rebels in Nazi Germany who actually did damage. What we have now with the technology being as ubiquitous as it is and being as ruled by, I mean, having been invented by the military for the most part and controlled by a small number of corporations, we have the possibility of entering into what is genuinely totalitarianism, 100% control over resources, speech, travel, etc. Because technology is the electrical, computer, internet-based technology is the ultimate tool for essentially keeping track of people. And if you can keep track of people, you can control what they do. So 
That's what we're confronted with now, and I believe that is totalitarianism in its effect. But that totalitarian vision has actually been the motivating factor behind Utopia going back to Plato's Republic, which was written 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago. It's like a Monopoly game to get boardwalk. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's like you, you hit the boardwalk, and finally with the iPhone and with the smartwatch and blah, 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 they got it. Maybe. 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 I don't think so. Because I'll say this, because what you said before was like there were, no matter what, they tried totalitarianism. Stalin tried it, Mao tried e Even currently in North Korea, where they don't have a word for I, like mm. the self, like everything's weird. There's still a black market. You know, there's still going to be something. People are going to find a way. Like in uh, Jurassic Park, you know, and he like drops the drop or life will find a way, you know, Jeff Goldblum. Right. Like, I, I, that just rings in my head. You know, I, it might get more difficult. You know, it might be weird. I don't know. I don't know what's coming. It's going to get weird for sure. It's, I can't predict it. But I think that no matter what, like the... The, I don't even know how to say, like the, the quest for freedom, the, the, the thirst for, you know, sovereignty, the human spirit is in, is indomitable ultimately. Um, and I think that will keep things a little bit more honest, but I mean, I see definitely the infrastructure, but I still think there's always a way around like nature will still find nature still in, in charge ultimately to, yes. I would say, you know, um, I agree, and I, I hope that I hope that you're right about whatever it is about us that is human is indomitable. But I have to entertain. A, a, oh, did I say healthy... indomitable? I meant abominable. No. <laughs> <laughs> easy, Doctor Gates. Easy. <laughs> no, I I hope you're right. Um, maybe you are. I have to entertain. I mean, though. we'll never know. I, right. I'm a, I'm a, I've, I've taken the white pill because I can't live my life in a vibration or whatever, you know, state of mind uh -huh. that is like hopeless. It doesn't work for me. So even if there is a hope that maybe isn't all that likely, I'm still going to uh, do that. I'm still going to go that route because it's emotionally the most healthy for me. I spent three years in my dad's basement, you know, mm. studying conspiracy theories Hell yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. And it was great. But like at the same time, ultimately I had to dig myself out of a bit of a pit yes. of despair. And I, you know, I think there's something beyond, um, I, 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 I don't know for lack of a better way to say it, I guess like nature nature knows about like the things that pulled me out of that were Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalists and a book uh, called reality Transurfing that talks a lot about natural law. And what I see a lot as far as the controllers or whatever you want to call that, is and we were talking about this over at the site a little while ago is like putting those moment putting putting those momentums in place you know like puppeteering or whatever but ultimately um i think that nature has the upper hand that ultimately there's no way you can dominate nature it's just never going to happen what do you mean by nature i mean like uh natural law physical law uh as well as even up to and including like karmic balance and i don't mean karma in the tr traditional sense like i you know bump you with my elbow and then i get hit in the face with a paper plane right right i just mean like balance itself like trying to um rig the game it, ultimately that has uh implications that swing back <clears throat> okay so do you think that tech that modern 
technology itself is in some way intrinsically unnatural or do you think the way in which people powerful people use it is unnatural or am i presenting a false dichotomy and is the answer something else no i think any tool is neutral in my opinion okay uh, anything could be used for a good purpose or a bad p- purpose i could stab you with a potato peeler or i could peel a potato with it sure. um so that's kind of how i view it and i think that a lot of what we see around us is a reflection of the the limitless expanse of infinity itself you know that we see a film because it's at the effect. It's a mirror of reality. It's not the other way around, which a lot of people talk about. Like, life is a movie. No, 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 no. A movie reflects life. Sure. So, um, so from that sort of perspective, I really think there is um, an ultimate, like, sort of higher cause. And that might be part of what drives you on your purpose to expose this idea and, you know, what maybe what drives me to, you know, keep bombing comedy shows or like you know whatever whatever that thing is and that's so, what you're supposed to do right exactly <laughs> i'm supposed to be talking about my taint on stage it's important god People wills need it to hear this <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah this, that's just my view and uh, I, I i tell myself that i firmly believe it um but i tell myself i tell myself that anyway um but that i think that anything is is is, is a tool and a reflection of, uh, of the greater whole at large. And ultimately that we are fragmented aspects of God, um, going back into oneness and in order to experience that, that's why we experience this conflict and the struggle It's because we wouldn't know otherwise it wouldn't be uh, possible. It's like you can't have unconditional love that's untested. It right. wouldn't be unconditional at that point. Right. So I, I guess, you know, from my angle, it's about me sort of playing a role in this and I'm trying to do my best. I understand that. Um, but I guess my skepticism is more in, I think even though perhaps nature finds a way and perhaps the human spirit is indomitable, lots of people die and civilizations do collapse. And as I was saying earlier, the 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 health of the state you know there's the quote that war is the health of the state and that's true but i would say even more importantly to the health of the state is just dependence in general yeah. and the more people that are dependent on the state and lord knows it's a lot you know it's a lot and it's not getting to be any less right. uh, especially after this past year the more people that are dependent on the state the more brittle the state becomes mm-hmm. And the more people are in the shadow of the collapsing edifice of the state when it finally comes down. Now, that doesn't mean that the human race goes extinct. Right. But it means a damn lot of people die in a bad way. Sure. And I know it's dismal, but, I mean, it's not like this hasn't happened before. Sure. You know, empires do fall. If there's one thing they do, it's that. Absolutely. And they hurt a lot of people. And who do they hurt? They don't hurt the bushman they don't hurt the peasant on the outskirts of the the empire because he knows how to build a fire he knows how to take care of his kids and his wife knows how to make clothes it's these pompous metropolitans who wind up getting the brunt of it they're the ones who get eaten by barbarians and and the village folk laugh and they're right to laugh and this is the way it goes and without trying to sound like a determinist because i'm not but i think that given the situation that we're in now 
what we're staring down the barrel of is some sort of collapse. Maybe it's not a total collapse, but I think that our institutions are becoming less stable. And frankly, on one level, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's just that I hope it's not so catastrophic that everyone who's dependent on them dies um, or takes up arms in their defense, which is also another possibility. You know, a total collapse would be bad because sheer loss of life. But a half collapse isn't that great either, because then you start getting a lot of factionalism, at least I think. <coughs> right. Excuse me. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic insofar as I'm able to be autonomous. Uh, I'm optimistic insofar as I see other people like yourself and everyone else who's here who are aware of these trends that are going on in the larger society. And instead of complaining and griping about it, we're actually trying to build an alternative that will last. That makes me very optimistic in the big picture. But insofar as, you know, America surviving as we know it. No, I couldn't care less. I mean, no right. offense to anybody sure. who, because I understand the principles very well. And that's what it's about. It's not about the people. You know what I mean? It's about the ideas, self-ownership and, you know, being able to create your own life. You know, that's right. kind of important. But yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Well, no, that's fine. I mean, so the the one, see, the, all of this, I think, is borne out by history, where big established things fall down, and then the people who were kind of autonomous on the outskirts, they wind up being okay. Mm -hmm. That's the way history has played out. The one thing that's different now, the Romans didn't have drones, Stalin didn't have Facebook. Sure. Hitler didn't have a GPS in every person's pocket. Right, right. We didn't have the internet on which everyone feels almost obligated to spend <laughs> hours a day on. And now this is a diff. This is, I think, it's a qualitative difference. It's not just like, oh, well, you know, sure, Hitler had technology. They had telephones and telegraphs and stuff. Yeah, they did. But you know what? A telegraph is not the same as Google Maps. It just isn't. And I think that even as there are there are people on the outskirts there are people like us how many you know is your is your uh 3g 4g on someone's is yeah. you know we're all we are nailed into these networks yeah. and to me that's a concern now that i don't think it's hopeless i'm not trying to be a big no, downer no no I, dude but, no no you're ab absolutely right i mean yeah. the thought of uh hitler having access to the technology that exists now is a harrowing thought and like I said earlier, I believe techno you know, whatever it is, the tool is neutral. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like we can use it for positive ends and but we're not using it for positive ends. You know, it's mostly very toxic and um, you know, Google's taking all this information. You know, I could go on and on, right? Like yes. that's not good in the sense of that word, right? Um, but I guess really what I want to focus on then is what can be done in the meantime. Like I can see these, these, this, this is history repeating itself. Institutions are basically built to collapse. I'm fine with that. I, I mock the institution. I can't help it. It's just my millennial nature, I guess. Hell yeah. I'm on the older side of millennial, but whatever <laughs> I am, what I am. Uh, -huh. uh, so I don't care about that. I don't care if this institution dies, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care about the tradition so much as I do. Um, the essence of the thing and, and humanity itself, frankly. So in the meantime, thinking about that, since you've done some research, what are some things that we can do and or continue to do um, to, to basically insulate ourselves, I guess, from uh, these 
musings of sociopaths telling us that we can have it all. Well, uh, as I said earlier, there are four or five cardinal virtues, uh, or not virtues, rather, but uh, values that you can foster in your own life. And those, again, are food, wealth, the education of your children, your own intellectual capability, and then underlying all of them is the ability to actually physically defend yourself. Focus on those five things first, and whichever one is more applicable to you at any given moment, hit that one first. You know, um, you, you don't expect to develop some kind of permacultural agorist paradise in your backyard overnight. Don't aim too big. You know, a, a single tomato plant or any a little herb garden, which you can do in an apartment. You know, you don't need to have acres of land to be productive. Just get thinking and be creative about different ways. If you can save $5 you otherwise would have spent at the grocery store, well, that's a win. Not because you're saving fiat currency, but because in the end, though that oregano or whatever that you may have bought is actually more valuable than the money. It's a true resource, and it grows out of the ground. Okay, money doesn't grow on trees, but you know what? Shit that's more valuable than money grows on trees. So let's do that. Focus on that. Number one is the food, the wealth, and those kind of go hand in hand. How are you spending your time is another thing. Everyone's got a job, and I understand. Maybe you're not in a position to quit your job tomorrow. Neither am I. Fine. But what are you doing when you're not at work? I know you're not at work 20, 12 hours a day, 12 hours, or 24 hours a day. You know, what do you do when you get home? Do you drink a beer and watch Netflix? I get that. But maybe only make that for Friday night. Maybe there's something else you could be doing with that off time. Find something that you're interested in and pursue it. Uh, and then also education of your children is huge. And I don't have kids. And so I, part of me feels a little guilty talking about this one simply because I haven't walked the walk, although I do plan to. But regardless of whether or not I've done it or I'll if be it's honest, difficult. The, yeah. the perspective of a child might even be better, you know uh -huh. what I'm saying, to help illuminate what a parent should do. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. I remember when I was a kid, and I don't mean to cut you off, so please hold your thought. Sure. Uh, I, I wanted to write a book about parenting as a child, and I swear to God, it would have been a bestseller. You know what I mean? If I would have actually done that. Right? <laughs> I, it, was a, it was a great thought. I could have been like a millionaire kid. And, that is a really good idea, actually. Yeah, yeah. So if you got a kid, <laughs> see if they'll do that and write it backwards, you know. There you go. <laughs> There's a, he's giving these ideas away for free, ladies uh, there you and go. gentlemen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but no, you're saying, um, you know, child care, education, self-education. Really. Regardless of how difficult it may be, and I'm sure it is, and I'm sure people aren't always in the position to do it. But that does not change the fact that it's probably the most important thing. It just is. And sometimes the most important thing is the most difficult thing. I, I'm sorry. I didn't make it that way, but that's the way it is. And to go back to Plato's Republic, um, there's a bit in the book where they're talking about this utopia of theirs, and they come to this conclusion that there's just, it's so convoluted and complicated. It's got all these very rigid systems that uphold it that they're all like, there's, no way we could ever do this. And Socrates kind of chuckles and he's like, well, yeah, you're right. There is no way we can do this unless you took everyone in the city who's over the age of 10 and got rid of them. And we just start from scratch with 10 year olds and below. Jeez. That's how you do it. And I don't believe that Socrates was 
authoritarian in his intent. I think he was pointing out that, look, if you can get the kids, you get the minds of the future. You can actually change the society. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everyone is familiar. Hitler said the same thing. That's right. The, the book of Leviticus says the same thing. Sure. This is not esoteric knowledge. Right, right. You know, <laughs> if you can get the kids, then you got the adults. Right. Uh, so I would say that making sure that strangers who work for these institutions that demand your dependence aren't the ones raising your kids for you while you're working a job you hate. Yeah, that's, that's a lose-lose. Yeah. I mean, that is, it's unfortunate. And most of us grew up that way too. So, you know, uh, and it's a, it's what they talk, talk about is like a generational curse, really. Mm. You know, it's like, it's been her- inherited over time, down and down and down and down. And of course we get to, it's, we get the fortunate pleasure of healing all these, uh, you know, wounds from ancient <laughs> fucking, t- but whatever. But like, yeah, I, I guess I just want to harp on like, you know, it's it's ours to do the healing and it's okay. Uh, it's not anybody else's necessarily fault. It's just been like a generational sort of shift over time, over time, over time. He's saying like, if you can take those 10 year olds and below and then raise them up. Mm-hmm. Well, what they've done is they've said, okay, well, we'll just take a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more and more and more and more getting, you know, the, the, uh, teaching the kids and teaching the kids and teaching the kids and sh- making that shift more gradual, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Instead of being like, we get rid of everybody, you know, but over time you can just implement that shift a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Absolutely. The, the incrementalism is a tremendous weapon of the utopian and interest that gets into modern utopianism as opposed to ancient utopianism. I think where uh, the idea of progressivism is a very modern idea and it's highly effective for, for precisely that reason is you don't take 100% on day one. Right. You know, you start with 1% and you resign yourself to the fact that this is going to be a hundred year project right. or whatever. Um, and yes, it's a long haul, but that's the way to do it because people don't notice. It's better to like, even from like a marketing strategy point of view, because you're actually connecting with people and that's what people want. They mm-hmm. want to be connected with. So they'll believe whatever, system that their friends believe you know if they're you know being you know brought into a group like people just they they will open up to that because you know it's just human nature in a lot of ways it's progressivism like small p progressivism is like an an app with in-app purchases yeah you know so the app is a dollar (laughs) and until it here's this wonderful game now, if they had if they had opened up and saying, "Look, this is a fifty dollar app. Yeah. No one's going to buy it." <laughs> exactly. But you know, over time, yeah. I can get that fifty yeah. bucks out yeah. of you. Yeah. So that that's the way it works. As it's much more as they effective. hate capitalism, that is like the the they, the, 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 the Marxists have the the greatest like marketing campaign. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Good right? lord. Or quote unquote hate capitalism. Let's even just say that, right? Because it's kind of silly. But <laughs> but yeah. But I would add to that. Is there anything else? You know. Um, that you can maybe say, you know, regarding people, I would add, you know, uh, building community. I, that's something I'm very passionate about. Just connecting, like we're having the opportunity to do now, and mm-hmm. um, and I connect online as well. And I, I again, I'll, I'll stand on that uh, soapbox of uh, technology being neutral. Uh, although <laughs> I'm being cer- certainly my information is being taken from me, but what any way I can connect to like-minded people, I'm, I'm going to do that. And then obviously trying to do more and more private type of networks and things like that you know moving forward yes i agree i just i think that the communities that you focus on working with are going to foster 
those four or five cardinal values. Uh, the fourth one was um, we left off with educating your kids. Yes. Number four, clean your own mind. You know, make sure that you're not falling for tricks. And that's not to say you're going to be perfect. No. But just be self-aware at the very least that you're a human being who's liable to make mistakes. You've done them before. I bet you can think of some. So remember that about yourself. And I would recommend maybe learning some basic logic. It You can do so very easily these days. Go to the library or go on the Internet. You can find people teaching logic. I actually have a history of logic series on my podcast if anyone wants to check that out. Cool, yeah. Um so, but all of those things should be the result of the communities that you foster. Because, as the internet era has shown us, we can join a community that's garbage. You know, it, community in and of itself is not necessarily good, just like any other tool. You could join a community of Nazis or, you yeah, know, what I, exactly. Well, that's kind of what I mean, too. Yeah. I think subconsciously we just pick up on things, too, and we get that validation of self worth from being accepted into a group mm -hmm. and that tribalism sort of gene kicks in and so we're open and accepting to ideas that may not have our best interests in mind exactly you know but it's just even part of that so that's the trick of, that's part of the trick of the utopian in the first place is to get hey you know we're all working towards this one thing and it's going to be wonderful it really satisfies that base need to be a part of a community and yet all the while, they're trying to make you more dependent on something that's external from yourself. So I would say focus on building communities that when you walk away, you're gaining something. You're gaining some level of independence, which it sounds almost counterintuitive. Like you want to join a community to be independent? It sounds like opposites, but really it's not. Because the stronger the individual is, the stronger the community becomes. If I have more, then you all have more because we, we're close to each other. We care about each other. And yes, of course, I'm going to prioritize, you know, my resources are mine first. Mm -hmm. But if there's a group of people I'm surrounded with who I can trust, I'm actually going to take care of those people. And I'm not going to be obliged to donate my surplus to some faceless Borg that doesn't care about me 300 miles away that's going to distribute it to poor people. No, no, they're going to sell it for money to buy bombs to kill people. Sure. Right. So right. the the independence at, coupled with the idea well, of building communities. Interdependence, right? In, sure. Yeah. And so this is something that I've said a bajillion times, and I'm never going to stop. But you can't become interdependent until you are independent first. There's just no skipping that step. You know, a lot of people, myself included... I wanted to go from codependency to interdependency. Sounded mm. like a fun leap, but uh, unfortunately, it's just not the way that that nature works. You can't progress that way. Nope. Um, so, what is so the fifth and hidden one would be? I would say that the 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 one that you really need because if you don't have that, then it's all worth not. It's all worth potatoes. You know, is being able to actually physically defend yourself. This is where your your firearms and your martial arts come in. Um, it's you know there, it's it's amusing to me about the idea of physical self defense. How, it, in a way, it's an, an ideal that transcends political distinctions. I know that obviously in the United States there are the gun control people, but those tend to be more moderate types. Even if you find like radicals, be they left wing radicals or right wing radicals, they're all very red pilled on the idea of firearms. Like oh yeah, like we we know. That we need it. I mean, Marx himself wrote, like, if the government tries to disarm you, then you know it's time to revolt. Right. Something to that effect. Well, and that's just acknowledging, despite the fact that I have tremendous ideological differences from Marx, 
he's simply right about pointing out that if you can't back up your own control of resources with violence, then you really don't have those resources. You have them so long as other people with arms are going to let you. Now, I know that might not fit into some very tidy and benevolent worldview, but I don't believe that such a thing is actually tangible. If I did, I would be a utopian, that everything was just nice and we could all get along. The reality is, is there are bad people and they will be perfectly happy to take advantage of you and take advantage of your work and reap the fruits of your labor and have no problem sleeping at night after having done so. Sure. And so the simple reality is if you want to maintain that food independence, that educational, intellectual, and wealth independence, you're going to have to know how to defend yourself. Simple, uh, there's no getting around that. And perhaps now more than ever, although even now I, actually, I take that back. It's always been the same. You, no matter whether you were living in 500 BC or right now, the threat of external theft, the threat of resources being removed from your interdependent community, it's always there. I don't care if you live in the nicest suburb or the worst, worst place in Sudan. You know, it's gonna happen at sure. some point or another. You're gonna need to know how to defend yourself. Right on. So. Well, cool. Those are great things. Yeah. Uh, th thank you so much for kind of going through that and exploring this idea with me. So um, I'm, I'm very well uh, on the same page with you. I definitely want to see people be more independent, more interdependent, uh, build community uh, and uh, and get away from centralization yeah. um, specifically. So I think those are all very Good takeaways, and tell people just one more time, Daniel, where they can find your work. Sure. So the book and the podcast are both called The Story of Nowhere. And uh, my website, where you can find all of that stuff and some more, is storyofnowhere.com. It's cool. all very easy to remember. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. It's, uh, it's really, really cool. The book looks awesome, and I'll definitely have links for all that stuff in the show notes. Thanks, everybody, for checking this out. Be sure to check out Daniel's work. That's Daniel McCarthy, The Story of You don't spend. I swear she must believe it's all heaven sent. Hey, boy, you better bring the check around. To the sad, sad truth, the dirty Lord down.
Got you thinking like that, boy. 